Um, how many here are only children? Oh, we have we have a couple. All right, let, let, let's let's see. How many have more than three siblings? Oh, wow, more than more than three siblings. All right, how many has more than five siblings? <gasps> wow, you guys should get a prize. Very good. Uh, you know, today we're going to be talking about sibling rivalry and, and conflict. And I thought, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, uh, for those of you who have grown up with siblings, you know that rivalry and, and conflict is, is just a part of life. Um, how many of you guys have ever, for those of you who had a sibling, or maybe if you haven't, just imagine with your friends or, or uh, classmates, how many of you guys remember just getting into fights? with other people, right? You get into fights. And, and like, when I was a kid, it was like that. It's like, oh my gosh, Jenny, my, my older sister, like, she always takes the good stuff, right? If there's like a last piece of food, she gets it, or she knows I want it, she takes it, and we, it doesn't take much, but World War III would start. Or, you know, like, if it's, if it's a pastry or dessert, we would both have sweet tooth. Uh, you know, like, you, you, you get an ice cream, and then you look at uh, your sibling's ice cream, you're like, oh, theirs is just like a millimeter tall. I want that one. And, and you know, we just start fighting. Uh, my, my sister and I, we would, we'd fight, um, we'd fight with no rules. I don't know if you, if you grew up like that, but we would fight with no rules. There was like punching and, and, you know, pinching, scratching. Uh, back then I had a lot of hair, but because of her, she pulled it all out. So now I'm pretty much bald. But it, it was not a good thing. And if eventually it gets to the point where, uh, you, you know, you have to bring in the big guns. Right. So uh, the big guns is you go to mom and dad and you tell mom, it's like, mom, you know, your daughter is the worst ever. And you need a discipline or, you know, lock her up in a closet or something. And I I, I could just imagine my parents are just they were just so exasperated. I, I think this is a Chinese parenting technique. But I remember my mom would take me aside multiple times and she'd in very serious voice. Look at me, Dean. One day mom and dad are going to die. And all you'll have left is your sister. So treat her well. How, how many of you guys have heard that before? Yeah, okay. So a couple of you guys, right? And so like my mom would say this, like, you know, threaten, like this is all you have left. So treat your, your sibling well. But the truth is, even now I have two girls and they're like so much better than I ever was. But even my two girls, they fight. And I think conflict is just a part of life, right? Conflict is just a part of what it means to be a family, whether it's biological or spiritual or or, uh, you know, professional conflicts, it, it just happens. And a lot of times we think, well, it's not a big deal, right? We just overlook conflict. We get past conflict. Uh, but sometimes conflicts uh, persist and they, they continue on and they escalate. Here's a true story. Uh, the Dassler brothers, Dassler brothers, Adolf and Rudolf, they're German, of course, uh, Adolf and Rudolf Dassler, they started a shoe company in their mother's laundry room at the turn of the 20th century. And so they started creating these very unique, very popular shoes. They were extremely successful. In fact, they were so successful that during the Berlin Olympics, now you got to remember this is the rise of uh, Adolf Hitler, white supremacy, Nazism. During the Berlin Olympics, the famous American athlete, the famous American runner, Jesse Owens, wore Dossler shoes. And he won and, he, you know, he was not greeted apparently uh, or supposedly by Adolf Hitler, but they were so successful that even gold medalists 
wore their shoes. Now, as, as they were getting even more and more successful, the tension between these two brothers grew and grew when eventually at the height of World War II, there was a miscommunication where one brother thought uh, the other brother said something and that just broke the camel's back. Uh, they decided from that point on that they did not want to work together. So the younger brother, Adolf Dossler, he took uh, his share of the money and he started another shoe company. He called it Adidas, right? He took his Adolf and Dossler. He started Adidas on one side of the town. Rudolph decided to start another shoe company on the other side of town across from the river. They're actually facing each other. That shoe company eventually would be known as Puma. And so some of you guys know of Adidas and Puma. But that that conflict did not just reside with the two Dossler brothers. In fact, it infected the entire town. And that town was eventually known as the town of bent neck people. Because as people would walk around that village, everybody would be looking down to see what kind of shoes the other person was wearing, whether they're on Team Adolf or Team Rudolph. And it was so bad that when Rudolph wanted a handyman to come to his house to fix an appliance, the handyman would actually have to change shoes before he could enter into his house, right? And, and so uh, it was, it, this, this conflict persisted long after these two brothers died. The town was split in half until finally, over 50 years later in 2009, this is not that long ago, uh, the two companies decided, this is long after both brothers died, the two companies decided to have a friendly game of soccer to just patch over everything. In our family, and in the church family, we've been talking about what it means to be a family of God. It's not just a poetic language. This is a reality. In the church, we are a family. The reality, though, is there are divisions, and there are rivalries, there are conflicts. And sometimes we think, well, these are not big deals, and we can just overlook them, and sometimes we should. But there are conflicts that persist, hurts that never get reconciled, pain that is never addressed, that will impact our relationship within this body, within our biological families, within our spiritual families for the rest of our lives. So today we're going to be looking at this question. What does scripture have to say about conflict? What does scripture have to say about the dysfunctions in relationships? And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. We have some of the verses on the screen, but if you need a Bible, go ahead, raise your hand, and uh, maybe somebody will bring you a Bible, or if you have your phone, you can open it up. The story we're going to be looking at is the story of Jacob and Esau. And now, you could read along, but Jacob and Esau uh, were actually fighting even before they were born. You'll remember their father, Isaac, wanted to have uh, wanted to have kids, Isaac and Rebecca. They they give birth to, or she gives birth to a son, and she's wondering why is this pregnancy so horrible? Why are like why is my belly beating me up? God tells her, well, it's because you got twins. That's that's only half the problem. These twins are going to hate each other, and so even before they were born, they were fighting. And so uh, when it was time for her to give birth, the first kid comes out. He's all red, right, and his body is like a hairy cloak. It's kind of funny because uh, throughout the rest of life, this is kind of how he's known. They didn't have uh, what to name my kid before they're born books, right? They didn't Google like popular names of 2019 or 2020. They just named him what he looked like. And so they named him Harry. That, that's literally what Esau means. He's Harry. The kid comes out. He's a hairy little kid. They're like, oh, Harry. That's a good name. In Hebrew, uh, Harry is translated as Esau. And so for the rest of his life, he's known uh, as a hairy kid. 
And as he's coming out, you know, the head comes out, the arms come out. Oh, good, everything. And the leg comes out and it's like, oh, wow, this leg, there's like something attached to the leg. And out comes the second kid, completely different, right? No hair. He, and he's grabbing this heel almost like he won't let go. And so they call him heel grabber. Or in English, we, we call him, we know him as Jacob, right? Heel grabber, supplanter, cheater. Uh, that's all uh, what this name means. Now, as these boys are growing up, they couldn't be any more different. Esau, Harry, right? He grows up. He's like a man's man. He, he likes to hunt. He likes to, uh, to kill. He goes out in the field. He comes back with a year's supply of food. Whereas Jacob, more of a mama's boy. He likes to stay at home. He likes to read. He likes to think. Uh, maybe he likes to scheme. Maybe that would be a better way to put it. Uh, he likes to scheme how to trick other people. In fact, his name also could be translated as someone who tricks. And so uh, as they're growing up, these two brothers, they're supposed to be twins. They couldn't be any more different. I can imagine uh, they would have their own conflicts, right? And maybe, maybe it's when dad goes out and he says, uh, Jacob, now listen to your older brother Esau. He's like, but dad, he's like literally two seconds older than me. Why do I have to listen to him? Don't you worry about that. He's older than you. Just listen to him. Or, or maybe, you know, like um, they're wrestling and, and things get out of hand and Esau pins Jacob down. and He's like, I got you. And you know what else I got? I got twice as much stuff coming to me because I'm the oldest. Right. And so one of the uh, Middle Eastern cultural traditions is the oldest child will get twice as much as a younger child or as any other children. And so, you know, growing up under that stress, growing up under that pressure, that must have killed Jacob. Well, one day, uh, one day Esau comes in, he's, he's out hunting, he's exhausted, he comes in and there's Jacob, he's at his kitchen, you know, testing all these different recipes and he's like, that smells delicious, Jacob, I want some of that food, I'm exhausted, I'm famished, give me some of that stew. And Jacob realizes, here's my opportunity. Instead of honoring and loving and caring for his brother, he's scheming. How can I use this situation to exploit him? How can I use this situation to get something that I really want for myself? So Jacob says, well, you want this soup, do you? Took a long time to cook. These lentils don't grow by themselves. They don't get gathered by themselves. This is a very special recipe. If you want this soup, I'll tell you what. You give me your birthright. And what Jacob here is saying is, you know that double portion that dad's supposed to give to you? You give that to me. We don't know why Jacob decides to do this. I mean, that must be some magic soup. <laughs> but Jacob decides, for whatever reason, maybe he thought, I mean, Esau thought that Jacob was kidding. We don't know. Esau says, well, who cares? I'm starving. I'm going to die. Have it. I don't care. And scripture tells them, tells us that Esau despised his birthright. Other translation says Esau looked at his birthright lightly. That's the first incident of these two brothers. The story goes on. Isaac is getting older. He's losing his eyesight. He's not sure how much longer he's going to live. So he pulls aside his favorite son, Esau, and says, Esau... I want you to have the blessing now. I want to, to bless you and let you know all the things that you're going to have and I want to just transfer it over to you if you will just go 
catch me some game and, and cook it up the way I like it. Right? You go, you go out and when you come back, we're going to have a feast and we're going to celebrate. And I'm going to bless you, son. You're going to get everything that's coming to you. Esau says, okay, sounds good to me. So he goes out and he goes hunting. Unbeknownst to Esau and Isaac, mom is listening in the background and mom's thinking, wait a minute. What about my favorite? What about Jacob? He's not going to get anything. So she calls Jacob over. Hey, Jacob, come over here. Dad's about to give Esau his blessing. But he wants him to cook him something first. So so here's what we're going to do. Um, pull some meat out of the freezer, throw in the microwave, you know, put, put some nice gravy on it, and you're going to serve it to him, and he's going to bless you. But, but mom, like I, I look different from Esau. I, he's going to know. Oh, don't worry. Isaac's blind as a bat. He's not going to know a thing. But, but mom, Esau's like a gorilla. <laughs> you know, like he's going to touch me, and he's going to know. Don't worry about that. You know, I'll take care of it. We'll give you a, it's funny, it's funny because they say, we'll take a, um, a goat, a goat jacket and put it on you. And, and that's pretty much what Esau felt like, right? He's like, don't worry. And, and don't worry if, if dad curses you, if, if we get found out, all the trouble is going to fall on my head. It's not going to fall on you. Jacob's like, all right, I already got the birthright. Now I'm going to get the blessing. Good. So mom cooks up this meal. He serves it to Isaac and Isaac's like, wow, that was a very fast, uh, fast hunt. It's like, well, God was with me, and here you go. Like, huh, something smells fishy, right? Come here, let me feel your arm. He felt his goat hair arm. He's like, oh, okay. And just like that, Jacob steals the blessing that Esau should have had. Now Esau comes back. He cooks up this meal. He's like, okay, pops, we're ready to eat. I want the blessings. Here we go. And and scripture actually is is very interesting because we, we read the language and it's very subtle. It's very nuanced, right? It, for most of the story, it's, it's very sterile. But when you read this, you can't help but just get a glimpse of the shock and the horror, the emotions that Isaac must have felt. His father, Isaac, said, well, who are you? And he's like, well, I'm your son. You're firstborn. Let me remind you, I am the one who deserves the blessing. Isaac trembled violently because it dawned on him exactly what happened. Who is it that hunted the game and brought it to me and ate it and I blessed them? And Esau heard the words of his father and he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. You just, you just feel bad for this brother. He just had his whole inheritance stolen from him. He said, bless me also, Father. Isaac says, your brother came deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing." And Esau said, that's his name, Jacob. He's cheated me twice. He's took away my birthright, and now he has taken away my blessings. Which brings us to the first principle here, right? We see in the life of Jacob and Esau, family dysfunction, competition, rivalry, favoritism, deception, And the thing that scripture tells us, and later on the brother of Jesus writes it very succinctly, the reason we have all these conflicts, the reason we have rivalries, the reason we we fight with one another is because we want something that we don't have. There's this misplaced desire in each one of our hearts. 
James, the brother of Jesus, says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your heart wants something that you can't have. You desire and you don't have it, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask, and when you ask, you don't receive, because when you ask, you ask wrongly, so that you could spend it on more of your own passions. See, the source of conflict for Jacob and Esau was that Esau had something that Jacob wanted. Esau had the birth order. Esau had the love of his father. And the source of conflict for most of us in our families and in our relationships is somebody else has something that we don't have. There's a misplaced desire. They have Maybe they have a toy or they have a talent. They have a possession. They have the love of a parent. They have the praise of people. And we want it because we think if we have that, that will satisfy us. A major source of conflict, right, in in your family. Think back to the last conflict you had. What was it that they had that you wanted? What what was it that they they had that you you didn't have? And when we allow those desires to overwhelm us, at our very worst, we scheme and we plot and we threaten and we hurt. We manipulate to receive the very things that we don't have. And I wonder how many of us have been hurt by somebody else, by our actions, our words, or withholding love, withholding grace. You read throughout Scripture, most of the conflicts that you see in Scripture arose because somebody had something that they couldn't have. Rachel wanted kids. Belayed had them. Jacob wanted blessings. Joseph, he wanted the recognition, and his brothers wanted him to know his place. David wanted Bathsheba. Solomon wanted pleasure. All the way into the New Testament, Judas, he wanted power. He wanted money. Demas, the companion of Paul who suffered with him in jail, abandoned him because he wanted the world. And they all did things that destroyed relationships, that destroyed communities, that severed friendships. Maybe for some of us here, There are things that we want that we don't have. And we think if we have those, we'll be satisfied. Maybe it's a grade or a position or a title. Maybe it's a family or someone else's family. Maybe it's the affirmation and approval that everyone else seems to get except for us. Maybe it's the popularity. Maybe it's the possession. And when these desires, when they overcome us, we do things that eventually destroy relationships, destroy families, destroy congregations, destroy churches. Maybe we'll tear somebody down thinking it'll boost ourselves up. Maybe we'll give someone the cold shoulder or or spread an innocent rumor. Maybe we lie or we steal or we cheat. We throw an innocuous dig at the other person. And until we recognize that the source of our conflicts come from our desires to have something that we don't have, a misplaced desire, these conflicts will continue to dominate our relationships. And there's nothing wrong to have desires, but when those desires become everything, they become destructive. The source of our conflicts come from our misplaced desires. Well, the story continues on. Uh, Esau, understandably, is super mad at Jacob, and he's like, well, once 
you know, once dad dies, I'm totally going to kill Jacob. Yeah. yeah. He just stole his blessing. He just stole his birthright. He's just been a pain his whole life. Get rid of him. Mom realizes that she stirred this pie. And so she convinces dad, let's send Jacob away to my brother. Right. Let him find a good wife out there. But really the plot is let's get Jacob out of Esau's presence because Esau will kill him. And so Jacob leaves after stealing the blessings. He leaves. He goes over to Laban. And it's during this time, actually, God begins to change his life. And as he's leaving, um, as he's leaving Canaan, Jacob has this dream. And on this in this dream, he sees this ladder that is set up on earth. And the top of it reached all the way to heaven. Behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west, the east and north, south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promise you. Now a lot could be said about this dream. But what this dream signifies for Jacob, what this dream signifies for us is that this ladder is not and it, it, it does not say we should attempt to reach God because we can't. It doesn't mean it's not saying that we should try to obtain more and get more so that we could somehow be like God. What this ladder tells us is God is coming down from heaven, reaching down to where Jacob is at, reaching down to where you and I are at. And it's during this time that God reveals to Jacob your whole life, Jacob, you've been desiring things. You've been wanting things and you've been thinking all these things will satisfy you. But but let me tell you something, Jacob. The only blessing that will truly satisfy you is the blessing that I can give to you. God the Father. The only blessing that you can have that will last for all eternity is a blessing that only God can give to us. Because he thought that taking from Esau, he thought that taking the blessing and the birthright from Esau, the tangibles, was what he really wanted. But what God says, no, what you really want is something that is eternal. And I'm not just going to give you more kids and more lands than you can ever imagine. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you a relationship with me. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you the blessings, the desires that you never even knew you had, which brings us down to, uh, to our second principle. God reaches down and only God satisfies our deepest desires. God satisfies our deepest desires. God reaches down into humanity and God says, you know, all these desires that you have, they're not bad, but they're only a shadow of what you truly want. Right, your, your, your heart wants it. Your heart wants the prize. Your heart wants the praises. Your heart wants the possessions. But the truth is, all that leaves us wanting more. You could graduate top of your class, get the best job, get the best title, have the most money, most toys, the best spouse, but it'll leave you wanting more because it never fully satisfies. And so we fight and we quarrel and we we have conflicts with others because we think, oh, if I could just have one more thing, I'm going to be satisfied. If I could only have her life or I can't only have his life, if I could only have her car or his house, I'm going to be satisfied. But God says, no. 
The only thing that will satisfy you is having a relationship with God. Famous Christian theologian hundreds of years ago said, our heart is restless. It continues to pursue, it continues to look for, it continues to long for new and different things. But until it rests in God, our hearts will keep on seeking. Our hearts will keep on searching. And we will continue to wrestle and quarrel with one another. And God does this for us. God reaches down from heaven. God reaches you where you are at right now. And he says, I can satisfy your deepest desires. Those, those longings that you have, those are good, but they will never fully satisfy you. They're just fleeting. And God says, you know, the praises of people that only last for a day, I can make you my son and daughter for all of eternity. Having a house or a car or whatever you've desired for so long that only lasts for a few years, a few decades. I could prepare heaven for you for all of eternity. Being the employee of the month or, or being the valedictorian or, or having the, the biggest bonus in your company, that only lasts temporarily. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, every single spiritual blessing will be given to you. All those things we desire, they're not bad in and of themselves, but if that is all we're chasing, we will always be wanting more. And God says, I can satisfy that longing and I can satisfy the desire. Will you put your trust in me? And it's at this point in Jacob's life that he encounters God and he saw that God was truly real. And friends, if you find yourselves having conflicts with people, ask yourself, what is it that they have that I want? And is this something that God alone could satisfy? God reaches down and satisfies our deepest desires, even the desires that we are not aware of. Well, time passes. Jacob becomes a wealthy farmer. And we're not going to go into the details of that story. But he's not only married, he's married two times over. And on top of that, he has servants who have kids, who have his kids. He has goats and camels and and sheep. And he's super wealthy, so much so uh, that he has to leave his uncle Laban, right? Uh, There's just too much competition for resources. And he he decides, well, I want to go home. I want to go to where the promise is. I want to go see mom and dad. And for 20 years, he's been far away. And I'm sure during those 20 years, he thought, I wonder how dad's doing. I haven't seen him in a long time. Back then he was nearly blind. He must be totally blind by now. Oh, I miss him. I wonder how mom's doing. Man, I, 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 want, I want to introduce mom to my wife, Rachel, not Leah. I don't like her. I was tricked into her. But I want to introduce, you know, Rachel to her. I want to let her hold her grandkids. My favorite, Joseph. She's going to love him. And I'm sure over the past previous 20 years, he's thought about home. Probably thought about his brother Esau as well. I wonder if Esau's still mad. I mean, 20 years is a long time to hold a grudge. But I did steal his birthright. I did steal his blessings. So Jacob decides to take the enormous risk of reconciling by returning to his brother. 
And so as he goes back, he says, well, let's just feel out <laughs> how Esau is, is doing emotionally. So he sends a messenger and he says, hey, uh, tell Esau, we're going to go home, but tell Esau that his brother Jacob is coming back and his brother Jacob has plenty of stuff. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to do anything. We're not going to be in trouble at all, but just, just let him know. And so the messenger goes to Esau and the messenger comes back and the messenger says, hey, Jacob, I, I saw your brother Esau and uh, I told him, you, you know, Jacob's coming back with his whole family and he, this is what your brother said. He says, I'm going to meet him with 400 men. It's kind of funny because Jacob had grown wealthy. He had all this family and he had all the sheep and all these goats. But Esau had an army. Reconciliation is always scary, isn't it? When we try to make things right with others, we're opening ourselves up. We're being vulnerable. We're saying, what I did was wrong. I deserve your punishment. I deserve the cost that comes with hurting you. I'm at your mercy. Which brings us to our third point here. Reconciliation requires vulnerability and is costly. And I think a lot of times we don't reconcile because we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be weak. We don't want other people to have something over us. But until we recognize at the heart of reconciliation, vulnerability is required. Reconciliation will never happen. It doesn't matter if you stole your brother's birthright. It doesn't matter if you accused a friend of lying. It doesn't matter if you hurt somebody. Reconciliation is always scary. And Jacob was scared and he thought the worst. He says, what if Esau comes in here and he attacks me? I've grown and prospered and, and here Esau has his own army. So Jacob does something. He says, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give him stuff. I'm going to give him 220 goats. I'm going to give him 220 sheep. I'm going to give him 30 camels. I'm going to give him 50 cows. I'm going to give him 30 donkeys, right? Some scholars have estimated, so this is uh, about 10 years ago, the cost of everything that he offered to his brother comes out to nearly three quarters of a million dollars. Now, this is about 10 years ago, so maybe a million bucks by now, right? So he's basically giving a peace offering. He's, first of all, he's being vulnerable with his brother. Secondly, he recognizes that reconciliation demands a price, right? It is costly. It can be costly. Either Jacob has to pay the price or Esau has to swallow the price. So he gives this gift to his brother, and the day before, the night before, he sends everybody on ahead. Jacob has another dream. And in this dream, he wrestles a man. Now, scripture is very clear. This is not an angel. But this man is never named. And most scholars would say this man is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. It means before he was born as a baby, this is the second person of the Trinity. But Jacob is wrestling this man and he knows that this man is not just any other man. This man is supernatural this man may be divine and he's wrestling him and this other man it's amazing he's he's wrestling god himself and this other guy you know can't overcome him he says okay let me go it's morning time right we don't know why morning is like you know it's kind of like cinderella i guess that's midnight but you know it's like oh well he turned into a pumpkin we don't know why he has to leave but he says it's morning you gotta let me go and here jacob says i will not let you go until and unless you bless me. I won't let you go until you bless me. And it's this full turnaround for Jacob because he knows now the blessing that he has always wanted his whole life, 
was not the, the love of his father, the birthright of his brothers, the blessing that only Isaac can give. The only blessing that matters, friends, is the blessing that only God can give. The only blessing that matters in life is the blessing that only God can give. So this man says to Jacob, what's your name? Oddly, when you wrestle someone, you would think the name would come up somewhere in this wrestling match, but it never does. And he says, my name is Jacob. The man says to him, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but you'll be called Israel. For you have wrestled, you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Jacob says, well, tell me your name. He says, Why do you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Now, it's an interesting story here. And sometimes we, we hear this as children and we're like, oh, that's really cool. But there's things I believe that we miss uh, when we, over, we overlook some of the more intrinsic aspect of the story. Right? First of all, Jacob recognizes the blessing this man can give far surpasses any blessings that he could receive from his father or even his brother. But secondly, when the man asked for his name, it wasn't so that he could put his name on a wrestling trophy. Right? This man was saying, tell me your name. What's your name? And when Jacob says, my name is supplanter. My name is cheater. My name is trickster. My name is deceiver. All the things of his old life comes flashing before. And it's only until we recognize who we are before God does God give us a new name, a new identity. Which brings us to our final principle. The solution to our conflict comes from acknowledging who we are before God and accepting his grace towards us. You see, scripture tells us that every single one of us were broken people. The reason we have conflicts, the reason we have broken relationships and broken dreams and broken desires is because of this word the Bible calls sin. You and I, we are all sinners. Sin is what breaks family and sin is what causes dysfunction. Sin causes rivalry. Sin causes bitterness. And the only way that sin is overcome is when we acknowledge that we are sinners like Jacob, that we have the wrong desires, we have the wrong motivations, we have the wrong passions, and we allow, like Jacob, God to redefine who we are, to tell us that we are no longer the liars, the cheaters, the thief, the addicts, the prideful, the arrogant, the dishonest, And we allow God to give us a new identity. And friends, Jesus does that. Jesus comes down from heaven, the Son of God. He bridges the gap. He pays the price that reconciliation demands. He lays down his own life so that we can have a relationship with him, so that he could tell us, this is your new identity. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's no more old Dean. That that old Dean has passed away. The old dean that, that lied and the old dean that, that coveted, the old dean that lusted, that, that's, that's the old dean. And God gives you a new name. A child of God. Daughter and son of the King Most High. 
forgiven, loved, precious. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. This is the reality when we accept Jesus Christ in our lives. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. In a very real sense, Jacob, the old Jacob, the liar, the cheater, the thief, the deceiver, he died that day. And he's referred to Jacob a few more times after that. But by and large, from that point on, he was referred to as the man who wrestles with God, the man who rules with God. He was referred to as Israel. When you and I seek reconciliation from God, God does the same exact thing in us. He says, you're no longer the old you. You're now forgiven. You're now loved, you're now cherished, you're now precious, you're now valuable. Every treasure that you have ever wanted, every desire that you have ever wanted, I will now fulfill in my son, Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the old you is gone. Those old desires, they they get supplanted with a new desire to love God because God is the one who truly defines who we are. And there's a new person. Well, let's wrap up the story. Jacob goes on and, and in the morning he goes and he looks for Esau and his whole family, you know, all his caravans going ahead of him. Jacob finally sees Esau with his 400 men from afar and Jacob's bowing low before him, a very humbling act for, for an adult male. And as he's humbling seven times before Esau, Esau comes running up to him and he hugs him and he kisses him and he falls at his neck And just like that, just like that, reconciliation begins. Just like that, 20 years of bitterness and 20 years of anger and 20 years of pain, 20 years of regret begins to melt away. With that hug and with that kiss, reconciliation started. And there's this tremendous thing that Jacob says, And I want you guys to catch this. This is so critical for us as Christians. When Jacob says to Esau, please take some of this gift that I give to you. I have plenty. I want you to have it. Esau says, no, no, no. I I have plenty of my own. I'm just so happy to see you. I'm so happy that you're back. Jacob says, I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. And here's the truth. When we reconcile with other people, not because we're better, right? not because we're more patient, not because we're more loving, not because we're, we're well-trained or well-raised, but because we recognize that we've been reconciled to God first. When we reconcile with others, we are giving the world a glimpse of who God is. We're letting the world see this is what the new creation is. This is what new heaven looks like. This is God himself at work in us, because reconciliation is only a work that God can do. We're going to move into a time of communion. And during this time of communion, there's three things that I want you to consider. The first is, if you know that there is somebody who has something against you, go and be reconciled. Jesus tells us, If you're offering your gift at the altar, this is an act of worship. 
and there you remember that your brother has something against you, don't go on with the worship. Don't go on with the offering. Go before your brother. Be reconciled with your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Who do you need to be reconciled with today? For some of us, it's family members. For some of us, it's friends. For some of us, it's someone in this church. For some of us, it's someone in the church that we just left. Who do we need to be reconciled with? And when we go there, you you need to know that reconciliation requires vulnerability. It's scary to say, what I did to you was wrong. What I did to you must have hurt tremendously. What I did to you must have caused you tremendous amount of grief and pain. And when you go, don't try to explain your part. Don't try to justify why you did what you did. Just listen and understand the hurt that you caused. Go and be reconciled. For some of us, we're we're like Esau. We're the victims of a crime. We're the victims of a hurt. Someone else has hurt us. But this might be a cultural thing. It might be a personality thing. A lot of times we're like, ah, it's not a big deal. I'm not going to worry about it. It's like water off a duck's back. I'm not going to bring it up. Why rock the boat? Jesus tells us if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. Right? There's times we overlook fault, but if you can't over, go tell him his fault. Between you and him, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And this requires vulnerability too. This requires telling someone's like, you know, when you said that, it really made me sad. It really made me angry. It really made me feel hurt. Like you don't love me. You don't care about me. And who really wants to be that guy who shows weakness? Who wants to be the guy who, who talks to that person? But Jesus tells us when we reconcile, we allow people to get a glimpse of God himself. When you talk to them, remember that they are not the enemies. They may be victims of the enemy, but they're not the enemies. And when reconciliation comes, we have the ability to show the world a glimpse of who God is. And finally, for all of us here, if you have not yet been reconciled with God, if you do not know what it means to have a relationship with God, if you have not yet accepted the free gift that Christ has paid on the cross, would today be the day where you say, I want to be right with God. I, I, want to, I want my life to be right with God. I want God to change these passions. I want God to fill those deepest longings that I have. We're going to come to a time of communion. And communion is a time where you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are able to reflect on the things that God is speaking to us as a family. And what I want us to do today, we've done communion a couple different ways this year, but what I want us to do today is as you come up and you take this element, before you come up and take the elements, if there's somebody that God has placed on your heart, I need to make things right with him. Do business with God. Make a commitment. This week, I will follow up with this person. This week, I will seek reconciliation. This week, I will attempt to show the world a glimpse of who God is. Communion is also a time where we as a church body can remember what Christ has done. And so we ask and we invite anyone who has been baptized, a Christian believer, when you're ready, come up here, take the elements, go back to your seat, continue wrestling with God. And after a while, I'll close in prayer. You can take the elements whenever you're ready. If I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, He took the bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we are grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, for giving us reconciliation to you and now giving us the ministry of reconciliation to others. blessed us by coming down to this earth and entering into our pain and our brokenness, our broken relationships, our broken families. 
You've given us hope through your son, Jesus Christ. You've given us a new heart. Would you help us be satisfied in you? Would you help us seek reconciliation wherever we go? No matter the cost, no matter the fear. Thank you for being the first to take that step. I pray these things in your son's name.